GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. Police are investigating a sighting of human bones underwater in the area of the detached mole. It's a story that has had many of us commenting, but it is going to be a while before we get a substantive update. Roz Astengo will tell us why. We'll also talk about the most important change to the international tax system since the 1920s. Nigel Feetham, the Minister for Justice, Trade and Industry, will be here and he'll talk to us about his priorities for 2024. And rock guitar virtuosos. We speak to Alexander Vajejo about his new book. But first... It may be pouring on the Rock of Gibraltar today, but reserves of fresh water in nearby Spain have been dwindling for months. Kevin Ruiz tells us now about restrictions to potable water in the Campo de Gibraltar. Afternoon, Jonathan. Yes, it has. They begin tomorrow. We'll go into the detail in the next uh, couple of minutes. Um, the Spanish, this is one of those uh, expressions that the Spanish love to use. It's not an, a Spanish expression, but they love to use it. La ley de Murphy, as they say. It's pouring today. Murphy's law. Yep. yep. And the restrictions are coming into effect t- today um, because the reservoirs in the Campo de Gibraltar, the reservoirs supplying the immediate area, have been suffering for a very prolonged period of time. They currently stand at 24% of capacity, holding a little under 40 cubic hectometers of water. And after five years, can you believe that? The drought, it's been a prolonged period of very little rain. Five years already, um, they've had to take the extreme measures that are being implemented as from tonight. Agrisa, the water supply, the water company supplying the Campo de Gibraltar, in conjunction with the Mancomunidad de Municipios, um, have come to that agreement. They're rolling out the water Restrictions across the eight municipalities that comprise the Campo de Gibraltar, and as from tonight, importantly, um, as from every, as from tonight, the measures apply between six in the morning and eleven at night. That's every day. There'll be a drop in water pressure. Pelote, it means, between, no, the other way around. No, between no, eleven there's, p.m. The, the, there's two ah, tiers. There's okay. two tiers. Between six in the morning and eleven at night, there's going to be a drop in the water pressure. In Spain, they don't necessarily cut your water supply, there's a reduction in the water pressure, meaning people um, who are not uh, in higher levels in buildings or up the mountains, people who are most uh, who are closer to 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 the the, source. To the shoreline, to the source as well, um, they won't be as greatly affected. There's a drop in water supply to restrict its use. People will find they'll have a trickle of water, meaning they can fill up uh, a cup of water. They can they can still get water to drink. They have a water for basic needs to fill a kettle. Um, Most people will have that during the daytime hours. The big one will be from 11 at night till 6 in the morning. That's the overnight hours when there's what they are terming a drastic drop in water pressure, meaning most people will have little to no water. Those in higher levels in buildings or further up the mountains or further away from the shore or the source will find they have no water at all. Um, there's also other measures as well. Um, a number of very um, strict prohibitions on the use of water which come into effect today in the Campo de Gibraltar. 
There's no watering to gardens or green areas or public spaces. The cleaning of roads, both private and public, that cannot take place. What, what about what about um, golf courses, for example? Well, golf courses they cannot. Um, they they need to they'll need to buy their own water. I mean, the Campo de Gibraltar does supply water to the golf courses in the area. Those are private entities. Those private enterprises have already been trying to find solutions and alternatives to keep the business model going. They're already sourcing water from elsewhere in order to keep their businesses going. Um, Cleaning of roads, public and private, will not be allowed. Fountains will be stopped. They cannot run, nor public showers. Private swimming pools cannot be filled. And you cannot wash your vehicle on a public highway. So you cannot be seen cleaning or washing your vehicle in in public. All those restrictions and prohibitions are coming to effect tonight from 11. And they're affecting almost 280,000 people in the area. Including some 15,000 cross-frontier workers, workers. Who, who come into Gibraltar every exactly. day yep. to work here. No? So, so that it's going to have a significant, significant impact. Significant effect. Uh, restaurants uh, will be frequented by, by uh, Gibraltarians, people living in Gibraltar more generally. Uh, so they might notice that uh, restaurants have to close earlier. Close earlier or they might be adapting, which has happened, happened in the past. Some restaurants bring their serving hours earlier. They'll be limited um, choices as well in the menu um, because all these restrictions will of course impact in different ways all the different industries and um, in, in the area of course um, they all come into play tonight so if you're living in the Campo de Girardar be careful, the idea of course is um, to also promote responsible use of water, um, there's no end date of course to when these restrictions could uh, come to an end could expire it all depends on, on how much rain we get in the next few months. They be, uh, there's no serious quantity of rain forecast uh, for the next few days. Um, Despite the fact that it, it is actually raining a lot. Yeah. 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 But it, one thing is to like enough rain to, to, to get a, us wet on our way to work, on our way home. Another thing is enough to rain fill to fill reservoirs. up a reservoir. Yes, no? and um, like I say, the idea of these measures, um, according to, to estimates, these measures um, aim to save 20% of water consumption every day. Why not? Um, the other thing that I was thinking of is that we're likely to see a lot of five-litre containers um, being bought privately yeah. by people um, in, in supermarkets in Spain, um, maybe some more water bowsers uh, yeah. I- I- as we move around the Campo de Gibraltar. No? Most definitely. Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Now, on the back of uh, the government introducing a top-up tax for large companies, the Minister for Justice, Trade and Industry, Nigel Feetham, is planning for the year ahead with a strong focus on empowering young people and strengthening Gibraltar's financial stability. Those are his goals for 2024, and we'll talk to him about them in just a moment. But uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Feetham. Good afternoon. And let me first ask you about that first big change Mm. introduced in December, the top-up tax. What is it? Thank you very much, Jonathan. The first point to make, Jonathan, is that uh, all ministries, all ministries except mine, are about spending money in terms of providing a service to the public, the public service. My ministry or the ministries that I'm responsible for, uh, the important aspect of the work that I do, first of all, is to try to grow the economy in, in the areas that I'm responsible for, primarily financial services 
and gaming in order to be able to generate revenue that pays for all government public expenditure. I'm also responsible for taxation uh, and therefore an important aspect of the work that I am planning to do is to look at areas where we can grow uh, tax revenues in Gibraltar precisely to be able to pay for the sort of things that sometimes we take for granted. I was here a month ago, Jonathan, and we had a discussion and I touched I touched upon some of the things that I was looking at doing in relation to tax. And you asked me, if you introduce tax measures and increase tax revenues, aren't you putting companies off in terms of them viewing Gibraltar as an attractive investment domicile? And my answer to that was no, if you do it the right way. There are clever ways of doing it precisely to avoid having that sort of debate. And this is an example. When I was elected, when the government was elected into office and I took responsibility for taxation, I had very very much this at the back of my mind. I asked myself the question, what is the government planning to do in relation to implementing the OECD so-called Pillar 2 initiative? At the time, the view taken was that we would seek implementation of the relevant rules, and they're very technical and I don't plan to go through, through them in any detail, in 2025. I asked the question, well, isn't there an opportunity for us actually to take control of the implementation date as from the 1st of January to allow the government to raise revenue that might otherwise go to another jurisdiction? And therefore, what we've done, and it's important to emphasise that this is not a tax on all companies in Gibraltar. In fact, it doesn't impact on the very large majority of companies. My calculation is that it probably impacts on around, at most, 12 to 15 companies. They are, in scope, multinational companies that have tax turnover, that have a turnover, revenue turnover, of at least £750 million. And the whole point is this. If I hadn't introduced the measures that I'm planning to introduce, which I announced in Parliament, effective from the 1st of January, according to the way that the OECD are implementing the so-called Pillar 2 rules, which envisage the implementation of a minimum global rate of 15% tax, if I hadn't done the top-up tax, another jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the parent company within the in-scope companies that we've identified should be liable to the top-up tax, those jurisdictions would have levied the tax on Gibraltar profits that I would have therefore not been able to do, even though they are revenues that are attributable to Gibraltar subsidiary companies. So let me, let me take that one step at a time. There's a global movement then towards harmonising the minimum uh, taxable, uh, the minimum uh, tax rate. For uh, multinational in-scope companies. For, for multinational in-scope companies, which are, are basically, in, in, in layman's terms, very large companies. Correct. Uh, who make uh, or turn over a lot of money. Correct. Um, and, uh, and we have a number of them uh, operating through Gibraltar or based in Gibraltar? Correct. Specifically within the financial services and gaming sectors. Okay, so possibly an insurance company? Uh, possibly. Okay. Uh, and and the because of this international movement, which uh, I think you've described as the, the, the most significant change to the international tax system in the past 100 years, but because of that, Gibraltar has said, well, we've got an opportunity to, to see how we bring these changes about and we're going to uh, do it on our terms and we're going to do it we're going to be like a first mover, really, uh, no? Absolutely right. We have been one of the first movers in relation to this, Jonathan. In fact, 
within days of me making an announcement of what we were planning to do in Gibraltar, Switzerland, that had already publicly said their stated position was that they were not planning to do anything until 2025. Within days of us making an announcement, they basically said we are also applying a top-up tax. I mean, obviously, they didn't do it by reference to Gibraltar, but I'm absolutely certain that we have influenced others in the policy initiative that we've taken. The point is this, it's tax neutral to the group. In other words, if they don't pay the tax in Gibraltar, the difference between our headline rate of tax of 12.5% and the 15 global minimum rate of tax, which the OECD are saying has to be applied, if we didn't do it, another jurisdiction would do it. So therefore, when I was in this program last time, I purposely used the words, I've got to make sure, as the minister responsible for taxation, that the way that we tax large companies in Gibraltar, we don't leave money on the table. I think I used those yeah, words. Yeah, you use those terms. That's right, that's right. So so the money on the table is, is basically somebody is going to have to Pay. charge that uh, that exactly. tax, that 2.5% difference, yes. and, and, and it might as well be us. Yes, absolutely. But of course, it takes legislation and it takes a bold policy decision to do what we have articulated and said that we're doing. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, 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 a different government may have taken the view, well, you know, this is not something that we want to do, A, because maybe they don't have the level of knowledge and expertise that certainly I have in this area, or that it's easier not to do anything because there might be, you know, a a backlash of sorts. I was going to say, has there been any backlash from the companies? Not at all. I haven't received any representation from any company saying that the way in which I've articulated that the tax will apply is detrimental to them as a group, it can't be detrimental to them as a group because clearly if they don't pay the tax in Gibraltar, they'll pay it somewhere else. I made it a point as well of consulting leading local professionals. I also made it a point of uh, embarking on a wider consultation process which wasn't very public. It was on a one-to-one and certainly the feedback that I got over a short period of time was that this would not be adverse to their presence in Gibraltar. But let me say that these things take time. I mean, when I was here a month ago, I said, Jonathan, one of the areas that I'm working very hard on, even though I have a very large ministerial portfolio, is tax. And I'm meeting the Commissioner of Tax, the Commissioner of Income Tax on a regular basis, sometimes uh, two meetings a week. And, and clearly what I was doing was discussing this particular area. The other thing that I did, Jonathan, because I am cautious by nature, is I've asked the tax authority in Gibraltar to also engage with the OECD itself, the the international organization that will have the oversight responsibility for this policy. We've consulted them uh, and certainly they've been very complimentary of the fact that we are taking the steps that we are taking. So it's a win-win for Gibraltar. It's a win-win in terms of the tax revenues that we will be raising and it's a win-win reputation. How much do you expect to raise then? Uh, You you gave a minimum uh, figure in Parliament, didn't you? Yes, yes. The minimum figure that I expect to raise, Jonathan, is 6.5 million. I am cautious by nature. I would rather not give you a number, but let me say that I think that is a very conservative figure in line with my own approach to the things that I do. That's very conservative. I I expect so it could, the number it could to be much higher than that. I expect the number to be much higher. And is that factored into the the chief minister's uh, budgeting for for this year? Uh, um, uh, being as cautious as we are as a government, I wouldn't expect him to do that until I'm in a position to bank it.
Yeah, so so it could reflect then in a in a surplus or at least correct. But of course, if you ask me, are you fit? Is this the last of your of your policy initiatives? The answer is no. Ah. Maybe you'll invite me to another program, maybe in uh, a month or two months' time, and I will explain other policy initiatives which I expect to announce over the coming period. Okay, uh, so no doubt then you've got people working hard on those as we speak. Uh, uh, Yes, I'm working on a policy position which I expect to sit down with the Commission of Income Tax within the coming week in order to be able to communicate to him what my view is on a proposed policy change that I'm proposing to make. We will then go out and consult with the relevant stakeholders Uh, And then subject to that consultation process, um, we will take a decision as a government whether or not we make an announcement and whether we make that policy decision, actual policy for the government. Okay, and this speaks to one of your um, uh, stated goals for 2024, which is to strengthen Gibraltar's financial stability and to do so by focusing on boosting tax revenues absolutely but for anyone listening to this you, you you're not thinking of no. of uh, getting money from workers you're thinking no. of big businesses no correct we've got to be very smart on how we do this the easiest thing for any government is to apply a blanket uh, tax provision that hits you know people hardest and certainly the wrong people that is not my approach to uh, my ministerial responsibility. Uh, This is targeted. I'm looking at big businesses. I'm looking at the uh, policy imperative of companies paying the correct amount of tax in Gibraltar. All right, and uh, if we look then at at the the other goals that you have stated as uh, well, things that you think are, are priorities for you in twenty twenty four, one of them is empowering young people through uh, or in the financial sectors. Why, why have you made this? Because you, you've hit the the ground running with this one. Correct. No, it's been important from the start uh, it, it, of yes, your time. Yes, and it, and it has been important, Jonathan, and it, it's it's been important because if you followed my my election campaign and and certainly. Uh, if you had followed what I was saying during the election campaign, and I did say very clearly, uh, you know, I'm passionate, not just about the need to grow the economy, but I'm passionate about creating employment, educational and training opportunities for young people. And it's absolutely vital for our economic stability that we grow the economy in a way that involves the future leaders of Gibraltar. And because we have a limited labour pool in Gibraltar at any given point in time, Jonathan, unless we grow that labour pool by getting more young people involved in the financial sectors, then, quite frankly, we will do the reverse of strengthening the financial stability of Gibraltar. And um, I thank you, Jonathan, as well, because uh, last month you had some youngsters here. They were great. They were great. They were great, great, great youngsters. We had, and I want to make sure that I don't forget their names, you uh, you had Jared here, James Barton, Marta Capurro, we had uh, Elsa Parodi. They did a great job in articulating their views on what they would like to see, and there was a complete meeting of minds between their vision for Gibraltar and my own vision. So thank you very much for that. No, a pleasure to reflect what's happening uh, in your ministry and and and, and elsewhere in in the public sector. Um, you've uh, got a number, obviously, of of um, pledges that were made 
during the election campaign uh, in the manifesto that now fall under you as as Minister for uh, Trade and Industry and Minister for Justice, Minister with Responsibility for Taxation. Uh, how do you go about organising these and, and thinking what you need to spend more time on and, and what can wait a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is a difficult, this is a difficult question, Jonathan. It's a difficult question because you can't stop any initiative. You can prioritise, certainly, but you can't stop initiatives. And you'll see me that I am constantly at work. And therefore, because my mind is constantly working, then I tend to have high levels of productivity. But it's difficult, even even with that capability, it's very difficult because obviously you've got to prioritise some things over other things. My priority for the next 12 months is precisely what you've said. And also for the next three months, Jonathan, my priority, and it's something that I can't really speak very much about because of the very strict confidentiality rules that we have in place with the FATF, but certainly one of my priorities over the next three months is to do what I've been doing over the last three months since we were elected into office, which is continue to work and engage with the FATF with a view to getting Gibraltar off the grey list. We've dedicated a lot of time and effort in relation to this, and I'm confident that the work that... Hi, Ross. I'm confident that the work that the government is doing will be able to deliver a positive result. Excellent. But we don't know quite when, no? We don't know quite when because the work continues, Jonathan, and it's important that we continue to engage. Uh, Those discussions are confidential. All right. And finally, before I let you go, uh, the, you, you re- recently issued last week, I think, a, a press release uh, that you had appointed Emma Zemit as senior executive in the Ministry for Justice, mm. Trade and Industry. How important is it to, to, to have um, women represented in, in senior positions in the finance sector? Well, I think it's vitally important for women to be represented in, in, in all sectors of society. Uh, the, the, the view that we've taken in our ministries to support anybody based on merit and I can assure you that Emma Sabet was appointed after a a rigorous selection process where she was the standout candidate for that position of course she's a woman and she's also a young person she's 33 years old I'm very excited by the fact that she'll be joining us within the next three months it puts us in a position where the two senior positions in the Gibraltar finance one of them is 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 obviously uh, occupied by a woman. The the other one is Ross's husband, who's doing fabulous work at the ministry. I'm sorry to say this and call that out publicly. Yeah, he's doing fabulous work for the ministry. Those are the two most senior positions. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Nigel Feeter, Minister for Justice, Trade and Industry, for joining us, and, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is Gibraltar today. We've, uh, we want to tell you now a little bit about the, the police uh, searching for human bones near the detached mole. Um, Rosa Stengo, you, you've been following the story. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people uh, were talking, have been talking for the past 24 hours about this, uh, and not least because uh, John seemed to speak what was on many people's minds. Could it finally be the bones of the young sailor that went missing years ago, as Jock put it? Uh, and, and you're writing a book on Simon Parks. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's really touching to see so many people think about Simon and hope that these remains are Simon's. Obviously, nobody knows who these remains belong to and the, the Royal Gibraltar Police are arranging for those uh, remains to be retrieved from under the seabed. And you 
you look at the sea and it's all sort of vast and clear, but underneath there's a there's so much underneath. There are a lot of uh, wreckages and vessels that have gone under there, artificial reefs. I mean, it's not it's not uh, an easy and it's also very very dark. So it's not an easy thing to go and retrieve uh, these remains. So I, th- I think it will take them a little while to do that. And then of course, a uh, forens- it's a fairly large area that they're searching? Well, it's the area of the detached mole that they're searching. A forensic anthropologist then has to look at the bones and then there are certain things that they can determine. They can determine the age and the height, the sex uh, and the race uh, quite often uh, without having to go through the whole DNA testing. But of course, if you want to identify an individual you are going to have to do you know take those steps and that can all take a while i will say obviously um i'm very very closely familiar with the case of simon parks and it is my own personal opinion and i stress this is my own personal opinion that i think it's very doubtful that those remains are simon's because i know that that area was searched extensively very thoroughly by specialist divers in the days after Simon disappeared in 1986. So that area was already searched. And I do think, again, I must stress this is my opinion, it is more likely to be tragically a migrant. Um, We ran a story in 2021 where we picked up three migrants from the detached mole, but there were others that were missing. Um, uh, And I think it it is more likely to be that, but that is just my opinion, my assessment of the situation. Obviously, we... We hope and pray that um, we do find Simon's remains, but we're not getting our hopes up just yet. Um, There's a long way to go and we just have to wait for the police and the uh, forensic anthropologists to do their thing and and, and we'll we'll, we'll know more hopefully soon. And in this story, in this respect, uh, we're talking about days, possibly weeks? Well... First of all, my understanding is retrieving the bones could take a few days. And um, then, of course, an experienced anthropologist will be able to give a general view of the age, possibly. We don't know about Mm. uh, degradation of the the bones. It all depends on... um, It's it's really difficult to tell. A lot of variables still. A lot of variables. But we'll certainly keep you, uh, the public, updated. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Good afternoon to you, Alex. Good afternoon. Uh, Alex has written a book called Rock Guitar Virtuosos, and and we thought just to set the scene, if you don't mind, Alex, I'd play a little bit of music. Oh, I chose that. (laughs) Um, Pink Floyd, playing for you on Radio Gibraltar. It's uh, one of the first songs that sprung to mind when uh, I... Got to, to thinking uh, about rock guitar virtuosos, about solos that have meant something to me in, in our life, uh, in my life, and obviously in our lives, music can have a, a profound impact. No, Alex, in taking us back to, to memories of when we first heard something, or in, in your case, perhaps when you played something, um, music is, is powerful. Music is one of the most powerful things that there is, really. Um, you know, I have lots of memories from even before I started playing guitar when I was about five or six where my cousin would sit with me and show me Guns N' Roses tracks and my stepdad would show me, you know, stuff to do Scorpions and White Snake, and then my dad nice. would be like, you know, let's get you into Deep Purple. Deep and, Purple, cool. I've seen them. I watched them live. They're amazing. Yeah, they're, they're brilliant. And Richie Blackmore is actually one of the guitarists that we speak about um, a fair bit heavily at the beginning. 
of the book. Okay, so he's yeah. D- Deep Purple. We played a little bit of Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Yeah. Uh, 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 let's let's start at the beginning then. You, you've written a book. Um, uh, you wrote it. Uh, w- w- tell us what is it? What is it about? And and who is it for? So I wrote this with um, my PhD supervisor uh, Jan Herbst. Uh, he came. Um, to me after I submitted my master's and said, okay, let's get some information from your master's, let's turn it into a book. He told me he thought it could be very successful in the field. And we went ahead and the premise of the book is to discuss um, the development of guitar techniques, the development of guitar gear and how um, that has changed um, the scene, right? Um, You know, how everything has developed to what it is now, also in terms of how money is made, in terms of how uh, labels uh, would interact with these type of virtuosic guitarists and um, the ethics behind how they present themselves online, you know, if, if people are faking the music, this side and the other. Interesting. So. Okay, so so this is, I mean, for somebody who's not familiar with your own background, you, you are a musician yourself. Yeah. Um, and um, we've got a, a short sort of sample of, of you doing your thing on the guitar. And, and uh, you, you're not only a very good guitar player, but you, you've spent a long time then reading about the guitar, thinking about its importance to popular culture. Yeah. So it's just taken over my whole life. <laughs> um, I've been heavily into the guitar ever since I was a kid, and I always wanted to play more difficult stuff. And um, and I never kind of, that thought process never stopped, really. I'm like, okay, I played this one, I played this track, now let's play another one. And then it turned into, I want to write my own music and I want to write my own difficult things. Um, It was, I guess, when I was younger, it was treated a a bit as a sport. You know, how could I be more efficient? Which, you know, does take a lot out of the music that's created. And then I slowly matured into, you know, writing music. Takes it out because you you, you want to be efficient, but you also want to feel it and and have the emotion and and let that sort of play its role. Yeah. um, Like if you... uh, you played Comfortably Numb, David Gilmore, right? Beautiful solo. There's a lot of uh, what we call feel, right? Um, there's a lot of um, these expressive bends and really expressive sort of way of playing the guitars if, like, the guitars are part of him. It's it's really emotional. Yeah. So the, the guitar is feeling those those things that, that Gilmore was, was yeah. feeling. And if we compare that now to um, very technical playing, you know, it's very impressive and you think, wow, that's really, really cool. And then you don't listen to it again. Because it doesn't make you feel anything. So I had to do that personal journey myself of being like, okay, I've worked on technique for I don't know how long now. Now let's work on writing. Let's work on how can I express what I want to express to the listener. You know, the listener ultimately is the most important person in interaction. Okay, and um, the role of the guitar player, the the virtuoso uh, guitarist, that has changed significantly over the years? Oh, definitely. Um, So, guitarists have gone through a phase, um, uh, multiple phases, where they went super into technique. If you look at the 80s, Jason Becker, Yingwei Malsteam, they were like, look at me, I can shred, look at all the sweeps that I can do. Um, 
And then it kind of took a dip. It went into more field-based, um, into a more field-based approach. And um, now, currently, even though everyone is, well, a lot of guitarists that are prominent, they are very technically able, right? The techniques of, like, the, the technical abilities through the roof. And what used to be considered a very difficult technique, such as sweep picking, which is um, when you play an arpeggio on the guitar up and down through all the strings and one motion, right? Um, that now is a, you know, it's almost expected almost to be Almost like a standard. Yeah. No? So what happens is that people keep on pushing, right? And the guitarists I look at, especially in this book, uh, in the second half, they are part of the progressive rock, progressive metal scene. And what I'm studying for my PhD, I'm studying about what makes a genre a genre and specifically into progressive music, uh, rock and metal specifically. And it's about ideology, you know, like the musicians themselves want to be progressive. They want to be new. They want to have something special about them, you know. And so you have Tosin Abassi that brought the thump technique from bass into guitar and then you have thumping. But thumping isn't, um, you know, thumping on the bass is is quite a little, it's quite a bit different. But the way that things are defined online, that's kind of how we are. We have to go about it. You know, the people make the definition. Okay, and uh, so 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 you you've done a lot of research, I guess, for this book, Rock Guitar Virtuosos. Uh, how long did it take? Um, this is an accumulation of my life and what I like. So um, a fair amount of it was passive for myself. Um, the more nuanced, um, the more nuanced information that I had to take a deep look into. So let's say about two years of my uh, undergrad, two years worth of ma- well, a year worth of masters, and um, I wrote this shortly after, along with some additional, um, maybe about maybe four to four to six months worth of additional research full on. Nice. And and it must give you great pleasure to see it published now by Cambridge University Press, which brings with it a certain prestige. Yeah, I'm over the moon. I'm really, really happy. Um, you know, this is a big step forward for me. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, any name that's on it, it's a content, you know. I'm proud of the content that's in the book. I'm proud that I have been able to network through the book, you know, and um, I'm proud of the um, just, just everything about it. Really, yeah, I'm, I'm really, you really should, you really should be proud of it, um, especially given how much the the rock guitar means to you. Yeah, you've kind of you've developed another side of that relationship with this instrument that has brought you so much joy. No? Yeah. Um, Every day I play, and every day I think about it, and every day it kind of, it, it is my life, you know. Um, and it's not going to stop here, obviously. You know, this is a massive step in my career. Um, and, you know, now I'm working as a music instructor as well in Bayside. So everything that I know, I try to pass on to my students as well. And it really opens up a lot of their eyes in terms of like, oh, this person's active now. We're not just studying stuff from the 80s or 70s or even 90s. You know, everything's contemporary. And that's a big 
thing that's happened a lot in the academic world surrounding the electric guitar is that everything was focused on Van Halen, uh, Steve Vai, um, Richie Blackmore, David Gilmore, um, all of these guys, right? And there was no, well, not no, but there wasn't an immense amount of information on contemporary guitarists um, that I kind of look uh, sure, look sure. into. And they have developed loads. They've developed loads of techniques and loads of ways of approaching gear and how that and how they make a living. You know, the concept of educational um, products for their fans is nothing new, but the way that they have to go about them and how much more intense it has to be is... That's changed a lot, no? Yeah, yeah. So I've been a little bit cliche, you know, in going for Pink Floyd. No, you know, it's... With, with the Pink Floyd stuff, you know, just because they're mainstream... Well, mainstream. Just because they're popular doesn't mean that it's a cliche. It's just good. Pink Floyd is good. I like Pink Floyd. You know, we, we can't... Um, you know, diminish what we like. Good. I I, I didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> I just I, I just realised that uh, it's also uh, placed me in the uh, in the age bracket that I belong, Alex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, and um, and who who's the book for? Just to to round up, then uh, rock guitar virtuosos published by Cambridge University Press. Who is it for? For anybody who's interested in electric guitar, I would advise uh, all students to um give it a read um all guitar players um i would i would hope that they would read it because there's a lot of cool info and anyone with a remote interest really there's no like age range or anything it's just if you like electric guitar and you think it's cool and you want to know a bit more of the history and what's happening at the moment this would be the book for you thanks for listening to those highlights from gibraltar today I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.